If you brought a Bible with you, open right to the middle of your Bible to the book of Psalms. Psalm 122. We're going to start in verse 6. Listen to what the psalmist writes. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. There are other places in Scripture where God says he will bless those who bless Israel and he will curse those who curse Israel. We need to pay attention to that type of teaching. This one in the book of Psalms, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem is it's a command given to everyone. And we need to pray for Jerusalem. We need to pray for the entire nation of Israel. I encourage you to highlight that passage, underline that passage. If you haven't underlined anything else, underline this passage. I'm not saying this is the most important passage in all of Scripture. I'm just saying it's significant. And right now in the world that we live in, it is possibly more significant than any time many of you remember. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. As often as they come to mind, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem and pay close attention to what's happening there so you can direct your prayers accordingly. This is a significant time in our world. In the realm of biblical prophecy, this may play into it in ways that we never imagined, may not, but it may play into it in very real, large, significant ways. So watch what's happening and to ask God to guard a place that he loves, and a people that he loves. But in your prayers, encourage you as well to pray for evangelism to take off like wildfire in that nation. There are messianic ministries there, Chosen People Ministries, Christian Holy Land Foundation, and others. The Christian church in the nation of Israel has been growing by leaps and bounds in the last decades. And so this is an opportunity as people are seeking peace to find the greatest peace ever, which is through Jesus Christ. So you pray for evangelism. You pray for that to happen in that nation like it has never happened before. And you pray for peace because God brings the greatest peace ever through his son. Pray for the nation of Israel. Let's do that together right now. Father in heaven, the things that are happening are they're daunting. They're significant. And Lord, everyone is watching. The entire globe and, and I am guessing, Lord, the host of heaven are watching closely as well. We, of course, have many unknowns, but those are known to you. So, Lord, that leaves us in a place where praying for peace is the best response. We're praying for peace. And I know, Lord, that this little piece of, of dirt, this little chunk of geography matters a great deal to you and it should to us as well. And it does. So we're praying peace and protection, but we're praying evangelism. I'm praying, Lord, that the message of the gospel will spread. People will respond to it. And they will come to know you in very personal ways. In the meantime, I'm asking for you to guide those in leadership. I'm praying, Lord, for comfort where needed. I'm praying for decisiveness where appropriate. 
And I'm praying, Lord, that the world will watch. And I'm praying that the world will turn their attention to you. We're asking that in Jesus' name and with great faith. Amen. All right. Continue watching, continue praying. Um, If we get updates that need to be sent out, we'll do that. We'll let you know what's happening. Our missions team will be watching what's taking place there. And when the the time comes that it's appropriate for us to respond in some way, we'll respond. We'll just wait until we know when that time is, and then the response will come. Enough of that. Let's just get into the Word of God today. How many of you over the age of 18, in moments where you start to get spun up and kind of anxious about things, would really, 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 let me throw another one in there, really like it if somebody would just tell you what to do. Anybody else? Oh, that makes me feel so good. First service, there were a lot of hands up there too. I was afraid I was the only one that was going to say that. But the truth of the matter is, even as we move into adulthood, there are times that we want someone just to tell us what to do. It would be so much easier. Think about the the time when you were growing up as a a little kid. Mom and dad had guardrails that were really tight around you. They told you when to go to bed, and you did. You might argue, but you went to bed when they told you to go to bed because you knew that they had your best interest in mind, and maybe they just wanted some alone time too. But you went to bed. They told you what to eat and they told you what not to eat. Wouldn't that be a blessing today if somebody just told you what to eat and what not to eat? As you got a little bit older, those guardrails moved out a bit and there was some more freedom to make some of your own decisions. But as a teenager, mom and dad would tell you who to spend time with. They'd tell you how to solve certain situations with an expectation that you would follow their wisdom and there was great safety in that. And then we graduate high school and we're out on our own and The guardrails either get moved so far out that we don't even know they're there or they get removed all the way around and now we're left to make our own decisions. And that's part of growing up. Parents, that's part of raising your children. You raise them unto that moment. But I'm imagining that in just a minute I'm going to get a big amen after this statement. I'll tell you when to do it though. Here you go. Parents, one of the most difficult things ever with our adult children is watching them make decisions that we know are wrong, but allowing them to make them. Amen? Amen. One of the most difficult things ever, ever, but it's necessary. It is necessary. And in the midst of all of that, there comes those moments where we would just long to go back to a time where mom and dad would just tell us what to do and we could do it and we would be safe in it and we know that we would be safe in it. Spiritually, we experience the exact same thing. When we come to know Jesus, the guardrails are real tight around us. We're brand new baby Christians, and God's got these guardrails right around us, and we have things that tell us what to do. For a lot of people, that begins in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Those guardrails help guide our steps as we get to know God better and we find greater safety in Him. In the New Testament, it comes through things like the Sermon on the Mount. As we read that passage, we begin to see the guardrails and we feel safe and protected within those guardrails as God is just caring for us in powerful, powerful ways. But as we grow up in our faith in Him, the guardrails move and there's some freedom to move around within them and make some decisions on our own based on the relationship that we have with Him. And we make some mistakes sometimes. 
We mess some things up and God watches and he says, here's some grace and he pours it out on us and it's all okay. But then there come those moments where we get really anxious about certain things and what we want more than anything is for those guardrails to come in really tight and have God just tell us what to do so that we don't have to figure it out on our own. We don't have to make decisions on our own. God's just going to say, do this and everything will be all right. You ever wanted that to happen and thought to yourself, why won't it happen? And God says, maybe it does happen and you're just not listening. Keep your hands down now. But it does happen that way. There's times that God says, I am telling you, you just have to listen. Well, there are some passages of scripture that speak to that exact issue. Things that we get spun up about, things that we get anxious about. And we want God just to tell us what to do. There are passages where he does. And we just need to pay attention to them. I want to show you one this morning. It deals specifically with a subject that a lot of people get anxious about. The second coming. The return of Jesus. The Lord's day. And when it comes. Or the day of the Lord. Not the Lord's day. But when the day of the Lord is coming. People get real anxious about it. And they don't know what to do and they don't know how to live in light of it. And so the Bible actually tells us. It brings the guardrails in real close, if you will. Let me show it to you this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, that's some good teaching. There is a whole bunch in that. We could spend from now till the end of the year picking that passage apart. If we had enough time, we would, but we don't. So for the sake of time, what we're going to do is take about a 30,000 foot view of this passage and pull some things out of it. We've been doing that a lot with this study of 1 Peter. We're going to do it again, where we have to look at it from way up high to grab hold of the things that we need to. Beginning with this, this passage seems to begin with Peter saying something along these lines. Keep calm. Keep calm. 
Look at how he started, just one more time, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Keep calm. We hear this type of statement all the time. Keep calm or remain calm. You might see it. I wrote about this on Friday. You might see it on coffee mugs. It says, remain calm and drink coffee. Or you might see something else that says, remain calm and fish. Or remain calm and hunt. You can plug in any number of different things. This whole idea of keep calm permeates everything in our society. And it probably should. Those of you that know me very well at all, you know that it is on my bucket list of things to do to defibrillate somebody. I really want to. It is. It's on there. This is something I want to do. And I'm talking about rub the paddles together, shock them, defibrillate them. I just think that'd be cool. Nobody's let me do it yet. I keep trying and, and I keep thinking the time's going to come, but it hasn't yet. Maybe soon. Well, we served in a church that actually had, about the time that I was thinking I wanted to defibrillate somebody, they had a portable defibrillation unit. Anybody ever seen one of those? Doesn't have the paddles in it, but it's got pads that you lay on the person. I thought, oh, this is going to be my time. So I played with it. I found out how the machine worked. I carried it around on Sunday mornings like a briefcase. I'm like, how you feeling? <laughs> Let's get that back in rhythm. We'll see what we can do for you. The thing was, when you push the start button on that after you laid these pads on somebody, the very first thing the machine said to you was, remain calm. <laughs> that's probably really good counsel for somebody that's about to shock somebody. Remain calm, keep your head about you, that type of thing. I thought we had a portable defibrillation unit here, and Dini told me in first service that we don't. I thought we did, because the, the first aid kit has been hidden from me as well. I'm not allowed to play with anything that's in that, because I think there's a lot of cool stuff in there. So I thought we had a portable defibrillation unit here too, but apparently we don't. By next Sunday, we might. If you see me walking with a little red bag... <laughs> Stay away. <clears throat> well, this whole idea of keep calm is, it's all around us. And even spiritually, it is all around us. And it should be because it is good medicine. With this issue of the second coming, it is of the most importance. We need to be paying attention to it because people get anxious and they get spun up about it. And it has been that way since Jesus ascended into heaven. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Keep your finger there in First Peter, but let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6, we read this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now, see right there. From the very moment Jesus ascended into heaven and actually just as he was starting to go that way, his disciples were saying, is this it? Is this it? Is this the time that you're going to restore peace and you're going to restore everything in Israel? Is this it? 
And Jesus said, that's, that's not for you to know. And then he ascended into heaven and here's these two angels that said to the disciples, why are you looking up into heaven? The way he went is the way that he's going to come back. Now just get busy with what he told you to do. That's Phil's paraphrase of that. Just get busy with what he told you to do. And verse 12 tells us they did. They went back into Jerusalem and they waited for the Holy Spirit to come back. And then they just got busy building the church. They just got busy with it. And in the process, they had to correct some wrong thinking for other people because other folks at that point started to wrestle with the same exact thing. Is this it? Is this the moment that Jesus is coming back? This, this could be the day. So the apostles got in the, the mix and they addressed that issue with people. The apostle Paul would actually talk to the church in Thessalonica with a, a beautiful warning found in the, the first letter to them. Chapter 5, verse 1, just listen. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. What a beautiful teaching about the second coming. If we boiled it all down, Paul says, the time is coming when Jesus is going to come back. You know that. I know that. I don't have to write to you about it again. We're all fully aware of that. And he's going to come like a thief in the night. And it's going to be a glorious event. But until then, just do what you're supposed to do and don't get distracted. For the most part, he's saying remain calm. Just remain calm and do what you're supposed to do. But even after he writes a beautiful warning like that, he would have to follow it up in his second letter by correcting some wrong behavior in regard to the second coming. This is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Paul's pretty direct. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, here's what he was addressing. In the little town of Thessalonica, there were some new believers in the faith that were so convinced that Jesus was coming back very, very quickly that they quit their jobs. They sold their homes. They sold everything they had, purchased a lawn chair and an endless supply of lemonade, and they sat in the grass, staring into the heavens, again, a little bit of liberty with history, staring into the heavens, waiting for Jesus to come back. 
And then they ran out of money. And when they ran out of money, they looked to the church and said, hey, we're out of money, but we're righteous. We're waiting for Jesus to come back, so you guys ought to pay our bills. You ought to feed us. You ought to shelter or give us shelter and clothe us. And Paul said, huh, here's another way. Tell them to go back to work. And if they don't work, don't let them eat. This is not incumbent upon the church to fund that type of foolishness. Don't do that. Don't do that. They're looking up into the heavens thinking Jesus is on his way back at any moment and they've just become idle busybodies. Don't do that. So following this beautiful warning in the first letter, in the second letter, he has to come out with this. Don't do that. Because people have continued to get spun up and anxious and sometimes confused about the second coming. So Peter, in 1 Peter, he corrects some of that too. And he gives us what I refer to as the Ten Commandments for the Second Coming. Ten Commandments for the Second Coming. We're going to put them up here on the screen for you. Number one, be self-controlled. That's in verse 7. Number two, be sober-minded. Verse 7. And number three, guard your prayer life. Verse 7. Now, real quick, isn't it interesting that he says, be self-controlled and be sober-minded, which means clear-headed, as you guard your prayer life so that God continues to listen to you. Don't mess that up by getting so anxious that you lose your mind over this issue. Self-control, sober-minded, guard your prayer life. And then he goes on, number four, above all else, love one another. Verse eight, that doesn't surprise anybody. Number five, show hospitality. Verse nine. Number six, use your spiritual gifts, verses 10 and 11. I want to stop here for a second and just tell you that these two verses are some of the most powerful ones in all of the New Testament about spiritual giftedness. And let me show you why. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Make sure I get the right ones. Verses 10 and 11, that's what I was thinking. There we go. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now here's why that's so powerful. Those two verses are wonderful, leveling verses when it comes to the issue of spiritual giftedness. What I mean by that is really simple. We oftentimes think that the people that are put in positions to preach or teach are the most valuable people in the kingdom of God. And if we don't have those gifts, then our gifts are lesser or not as important. And so there's a lot of people that never move into spiritual giftedness because they don't believe they can do it. That goes all the way back to Moses. When God called Moses to go and confront Pharaoh and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, Moses first first statement was, yeah, well, and this is Phil's loose paraphrase of that too, I don't speak so good. And so God instantly responded by saying, well, I'm going to give you Aaron, and Aaron does speak good, so Aaron's going to speak good, you trust him, I'll give you the words, you give them to Aaron, Aaron will give them to Pharaoh, and everything's going to be good, I got this worked out. And God did. 
But since then, people have wrestled with that exact same issue, and then it bleeds over into this thought or this philosophy that if I don't have that gift, my gifts aren't as significant. Until you get to Peter's teaching, and there's other places too, where it levels the whole playing field to teach us that whatever your gifts are given to you by God through the Holy Spirit, they are significant in His kingdom, and they are necessary. They are supernatural gifts given to you by God so that the person that is speaking can share the oracles of God that comes through spiritual giftedness and the people that are serving can do the same. Listen to this one more time. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. That is a God-ordained gift. Now here's just a little insight for you. The people that speak and teach would have no one to speak and teach to if the people that served weren't helping get people in to hear what the people that speak and teach have to say. So you have to have all the gifts. And if your gift is service, then you serve to the end of yourself, and then according to Peter, you go beyond. And you start serving with the energy and the strength that God supplies. And all of that ties back together to us being able to say, no matter what, get busy. Get busy as we wait for the return of Jesus. If you want to hold off anxiety, get busy. If you want to hold off wrong thinking, get busy. So get busy. Use your spiritual giftedness because God wants us to. Now back to this list. Number seven, be vigilant. Trials will come. Number eight, rejoice in Christ. Verse 13. Number nine, act like a faith battery. Verses 15 and 16. And number 10, do good, verse 19. There's a very, very real probability that one of those 10 makes you kind of curious. You might not understand exactly what it means. If I'm right, it's probably number nine, which says, act like a faith battery, verses 15 and 16. Well, this morning, I want to show you something that once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. It's just there for you. But if you don't see it, it's okay because it may not be time for you to see it. But the time will come where you'll see it and once you see it, you can't unsee it and you'll go, oh, wow, I'm so glad I see it. It's a tongue twister for you. Here it is. Let's take a look at verse 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now this is talking about the name Christian. Are you aware of the fact that that word, that title, that name only shows up three times in scripture? Do you know that? Only three times. Here it is. Acts chapter 11 verse 26, Acts 26 verse 28, and this passage, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 16. The name Christian only three times in the New Testament. Partly because during those days when they were writing the New Testament, the name Christian was an insult it was a, a derogatory, sarcastic term that people would use to really belittle people. So it might be like this. If, if I wasn't a believer and I met Deanie and I knew something about Deanie, I might say to him, well, you're just a Christian. It was that type of a derogatory term. Now, it eventually, and it didn't take very long, it became a term of endearment and it became almost a badge and people were happy to carry the name Christian, but it took a while to get there. And part of the reason that it became that badge is the very meaning of the word. It means belonging to Christ. 
That's what Christian means. Belonging to Christ, I am counted among him. But we find out, as we're reading here in 1 Peter, that there's a trial coming against the people that carry this name. Peter says it's coming for you, and it's a special type of trial. In fact, he gives it a special title. It's a fiery trial. Up until the writing of this book, the church had experienced a a relatively easy go of it. Now, the Apostle Paul, under the Pharisees, was persecuting the church in the book of Acts, and there were people that had been martyred, but that number was, it was relatively small up to this point. The church had had kind of smooth sailing. They had faced trials, but it was kind of smooth sailing. Under Nero's reign, that would all change, and the emperors that would follow It would all change. And that's the fiery trial that Peter was talking about. If you carried the name Christian, you needed to expect that these fiery trials were coming. And so he shows us this cool thing that once you see, you can't unsee. For me, it appears like a battery. And I'll show it to you again. Here it is. Verse 15, or 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In this one verse, we have a positive and a negative. Looks just like this. We have a positive and a negative in one verse. Now let's look at the negative first. Let him not be ashamed. There's the negative. Let him not be ashamed. And then the positive. But let him glorify God in that name. That's the positive. So there is a positive and a negative in one verse. By the way, in my Bible, I have underlined both of those things, and over in the margin, I've put a positive and a negative to remind myself that it's like this. So when I see this verse, what I see is something that appears to be a battery. Now, I don't understand electricity. I have never understood electricity. My dad was an electrician. He understood electricity. I tried to get him to explain electricity to me. He didn't do a very good job because I still don't understand electricity. Maybe that's more on me. He explained it. I still can't wrap my mind around it. So I called Josh Erickson this week to help me with this passage because Josh knows electricity. Josh didn't answer his phone, so I left him a message. My message sounded like this. Josh, I have a really stupid question for you. If you get a chance, call me back, but don't call back if you're going to judge me. And so I just left it like that. Well, he called me back and he said, no judgment. That was his message. I called him back. I said, no judgment. He said, no judgment. And I I threw out this question. How's a battery work? And he, he launched into this wonderful electrical explanation that was up at about here. And I don't exist in that realm. So I started pulling Josh down so he could talk to a preacher. I wanted to get him to where he could actually make it make sense to a preacher. And he did. And at the end of our conversation, here's what we arrived at. That if you have a positive and a negative and they're both clear and functioning, then you have a flow of energy. That's the the root of it. He would go on to make this statement. And if you connect your battery to other batteries or you connect one battery to another, the flow of energy gets bigger. And this turned into a super cool conversation that I wasn't really expecting. 
And so here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, if you have the positive and negative, you're not ashamed, but you choose instead to glorify Christ, the negative and the positive. When that happens, there is an energy, a spiritual energy that begins to flow through you to accomplish the things that God wants to accomplish. And if you connect that to other people, follow me, the church, some awesome stuff happens. Some awesome stuff happens. But you need the positive and the negative. And when the fiery trial comes, if that flow of energy is there, awesome stuff happens. I'm so glad Josh and I got to have that conversation as we looked at this passage because now when I see it, I can't unsee it. Don't be ashamed. Choose to glorify God and no matter what is happening in your life, no matter what kind of trial, fiery or otherwise, God will do some awesome stuff. So we make sure the positive and the negative are connected. They're clean and they're clear and good things are happening in your life. Because before this fiery trial, there are other trials. There are other trials by fire even. Fire is an interesting thing in scripture. In the Old Testament, fire symbolized the holiness of God. Most often that's what it symbolized. Think of, of Moses when he went to the burning bush. It was on fire and God said, take off your sandals, Moses. You're standing on holy ground. It's the holiness of God. Even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you're familiar with that story, when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, that fire represented holiness because a fourth person showed up in that fire with them and that fourth person is widely believed to be the pre-incarnate Christ holiness of God in fire but when we move into the New Testament fire tends to represent refining or judgment let's take that last one judgment Peter would say this in his next letter but by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But there are other fires, refining fires, that all of us go through. We don't want to, but we do. As individuals, as churches, as communities, as countries, Israel's, they're facing a refining fire right now. Countries go through them. The hope is always this, that when we are tested in the refining fires of God, well, listen to how Job says it. But he knows the way that I take when he has tried me, I will come out as gold. That we will come out as gold. And that's what Peter was teaching. We need to come out as gold in the midst of the fiery trial. When the whole church goes through it, we need to come forth as gold for one very specific reason. Because God needs your testimony. Look at this, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, the church. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good so that other people will see it, so that other people can acknowledge who he is. So as we face those trials, those refining fires, we come forth as gold. It's hard to do. It really is. I know that. So I want to leave you with four questions that can help you keep the right perspective. And then Raina's going to come and close our service. 
Four things in the midst of trials to think about. Number one, why is this happening? Number two, am I ashamed or glorifying Christ? There's the positive and negative. Number three, do I need to focus on the lost? By the way, when we face trials, most of us get inner focused. We only look at ourselves. If you change your perspective, you can get out of the fire much faster. Do I need to focus on the lost? And number four, is my commitment to Christ getting stronger or is it getting weaker? Which one is it? Is it getting stronger or is it getting weaker? Those four questions can walk you through trials. They can help and they can protect your witness. They can guard your testimony. So use them. Use them wisely and use them powerfully. This morning I'm aware of the fact that as we talk about things like the second coming of Christ that there are some people here that have yet to make sure that they are in a relationship with Jesus. My friends, you need to be. You need to be. Look at what Peter just said. You need to be. So why not get into a relationship with him? And some people are not in a relationship with the church. You saw Jason as he placed his membership in the church just a few minutes ago. Some people haven't done that. You need to. You need to be connected to a local body of believers so that your battery is connected to other batteries and there's more power because you're doing what you're supposed to and you're getting busy in the kingdom of God and you know all that now. Let's get connected in the church. If you want to talk to somebody about either of those things, why don't you go to the prayer room when the service is over? Cool stuff happens in there. Go talk to somebody. And maybe you're in the midst of a trial that you need some help with. Why don't you go talk with somebody and pray with somebody about that? As soon as the service is over, Dini will be over there. He'll meet you. He'll make sure you get paired up with somebody. Make sure your needs get met today. Hey, let's stand together and we're going to pray together and then rain all closes. Father in heaven, this morning, we've talked about some big things from the message to what's happening in Israel. I pray that the right things will land on us and stay with us. And right now in these moments, these holy moments, I'm praying for those that make their way to the prayer room. Lord, I pray that they will meet you there. Their hearts will be open. And peace will come to rest on them. Whether that's the peace of salvation, the peace of connection, or the peace of understanding. Whatever it is, I pray it will rest on them. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.